Once I got here, it opened my eyes to this property. Granite Peak is from a lift infrastructure so above and beyond any any Midwest ski resort that I've been to. It's above and beyond some Northeast resorts that I've been to. That's what sold me on this place was the six pack high speed detachable chairlift and two high speed quads that are on the extremity of the ski resort. We can move people quickly and you can get in as many laps as you want here. And Charles has really invested heavily into the infrastructure of this ski resort, not only from a, a lift standpoint, but snowmaking wise. And he really gets it. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester. Breaking into the Midwest today. First though, go subscribe to the free Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. This podcast is an important part of the storm, but it is just a part of it. And I can tell you this, we have a ton of season pass and multi-pass announcements coming up over the next few weeks. And I am going to break those down hard in the Storm Skiing newsletter. And I'm going to have those out the second that information is available to the general public. So you are going to want to get in on that. Also, follow The Storm on Twitter at Storm Ski Journal. Before we get to today's conversation, let's talk about my partners, Mountain Gazette and Helly Hansen. The Storm Skiing Podcast is brought to you in part by Mountain Gazette. Founded in 1966, Mountain Gazette is a biannual, large format print title celebrating mountain culture. Head over to mountaingazette.com and enter code GOHIRE10, all one word, for 10% off subscriptions. Use code East Coast, all one word, for 10% off everything else, including vintage magazine covers, which make great art for your home office or living room. I got the first issue in November and it is incredible. This is more of a work of art than a magazine. The thing is huge, first of all. Quality of the writing is unreal. Huge, amazing photos. It's deep too. Like I said, I got this thing in November and I am still going through it and finding new things. Grab your subscription today over at mountaingazette.com and you will get a PDF of that first issue as the crew works on issue 195, which takes a deep dive into the heart and soul of mountain culture at a time when newcomers, locals, and dirtbags are learning how to coexist in this new era. Mountain Gazette, when in doubt, go higher. The Storm Skiing Podcast is also brought to you in part by Hallie Hansen. We all know conditions in the Northeast can be unpredictable. And if you ski every week like my family does, you need to be prepared for anything, especially this year when your car is your base lodge. That is why we are rocking Heli Hansen gear from head to toe to keep us warm and dry no matter what Mother Nature throws at us. Heli Hansen gear is ready for anything because professionals who brave the world's harshest environments have been integral to the development of the brand's gear. It snowed a ton here in New York over the past month and a half, and I've had my four-year-old son out constantly for skiing, for tubing, or just playing in the yard of the park. He has been gearing up in the K-Tinden insulated jacket. This thing is awesome. It is equipped with soft brush tri-coat lining for extra warmth, and the high visibility fabric makes it very easy to spot him if we're in the park, if we're on the hill, no matter where we take him. He's also been gearing up in the K-Rider 2 insulated bib. Like the coat, this thing has heli-tech performance with a weatherproof outer layer. It's insulated and waterproof, windproof and breathable with reinforced fabric on the seat, knees and bottom legs. It is perfect for a little guy who just loves to plunge into the snow. 
If you want to get yourself new gear or know someone who needs to refresh their kit, visit the Heli Hansen in Boston or Burlington, Vermont, and mention this Storm Skiing Podcast ad to get 18.77% off. Why 18.77%? Because that's the year they were founded. That's right, more than 140 years ago. Episode 39, Greg Fisher, General Manager and Marketing Director of Granite Peak, Wisconsin. Today, we're taking a trip, getting out of the Northeast and heading West to Wisconsin. Look, I know a lot of you in the Northeast turn your noses up at Midwest skiing, but you shouldn't. The upper Midwest in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Minnesota has one of the strongest and most well-established ski cultures in the entire world. That is not an exaggeration. They have the cold, they have the snow, they have countless ski areas, but most important of all, they have the passion. They love skiing up there. So I have huge respect for Midwest skiing and Midwest skiers. And today we are going to look at one of the best in the region. Granite Peak is the largest ski area in Wisconsin by a lot. The place is huge. And it has one of the most modern lift systems in the country, for real. It's a big, interesting ski area, a lot of trees, every kind of terrain you could want. And for you East Coast skiers who can't interest yourselves in the Midwest, Greg worked for Peak Resorts for a very long time. He helped roll out the Peak Pass and spent a ton of time at Mount Snow. The first half hour of the podcast is all Northeast. And I think you will be very interested in what he has to say about the history of Peak Resorts and how the whole acquisition by Vail went down and what happened in the aftermath. And if you are not familiar with Midwest skiing and you're dismissive of it, I hope you come out of this with a different point of view. Let's hear it. My guest today is in his first year as general manager of Granite Peak, Wisconsin, with a 700-foot vertical drop serving 58 trails and spread across more than 200 acres. Granite Peak is the largest ski area in Wisconsin. The mountain is served by a modern lift fleet, including a high-speed six-pack and a pair of high-speed quads. Opened as Rib Mountain in 1937, Granite Peak is the oldest continuously operating ski area in Wisconsin and in the entire Midwest. Prior to joining the team at Granite Peak, he spent 20 years working in a variety of roles at Peak Resorts, including marketing and events at Mount Snow, general manager of Mad River Mountain, Ohio, and Vice President of Marketing for all of Peak's 17 resorts. Greg Fisher is my guest. Greg, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me, Stuart. I'm really, uh, really excited. And like I said, I've uh, really enjoyed your work over the, uh, the last year listening to your podcast. Well, thanks so much for that, Greg. Uh, one of the things that stood out to me as I was researching for this interview is that you didn't grow up skiing, but you now make your living in the ski industry. Uh, tell us how you got started in the industry and how that led to you taking up skiing. Yeah, um, I grew up on Long Island, New York, a um, little tiny hamlet called uh, Carl Place, which is a mile square. And uh, I grew up, you know, playing soccer, baseball, football, I was very much into team sports. My dad was a minor league baseball player for some time. And, um, you know, I went to school at UMass Amherst and studied uh, sport management. And it's in the western part of Massachusetts and right outside the Berkshires. And during my junior year, um, the X Games went to Mount Snow and the sport management department had a class um, that was for seniors um, that was helping ESPN market what was a relatively new entity to them, the X Games, uh, to college aged kids across um, Massachusetts. 
Um, I was a junior. I couldn't get into that class, um, but I was going to Australia for my junior or my spring semester, and the program didn't really start until late February. Uh, so I had a long winter break and went to the professor and essentially asked him for, you know, if there was an opportunity for me to to do anything for the class. And he ended up just getting me associated to the production coordinator um, up there. And I ended up getting a job with ESPN um, for the X Games um, at Mount Snow. So uh, I was a production runner and kind of ran around getting anything and everything that you needed for talent, um, whether it was, uh, you know, picking people up from the airport or getting them to uh, individual uh, areas around the mountain, um, you know, and from there, I started to meet some people at Mount Snow. I worked on the X Games for two years. I actually worked on five X Games in total across the country, both winter and summer. But uh, the second year that I was at Mount Snow, I started make I started putting up fences and got to know some individuals in the events team. What happened was the marketing, the events director left, and the guy that I was working with was the event coordinator. He got promoted to the events director and um, called me up and asked me if I wanted a job. And I had actually taken a job with Sunday River at the time. And I knew Mount Snow much more uh, in terms of the overall area and the mountain. And um, at the time, you know, it felt right to go back down to Mount Snow. And uh, so I took the job there and um, and bailed on Sunday River and uh, started my career kind of just as an event grunt, putting up fences, doing timing for races um, and, and working, you know, 10 months out of the year. And then uh, the other two or three months during the course of the summer, I was a raft guide. So um, that's kind of how I started skiing. I actually started skiing, believe it or not, on um, ski blades. <laughs> so uh, I couldn't afford skis when I was in college, but uh uh, I ended up getting the All East Pass, uh, the College East Pass, which was done by American Ski Company at the time. So, so you end up at Mount Snow. Uh, what was your role there at first? Uh, at first, I was called I was the events coordinator. Um, so, like I said, I was more of an operations guy, but in the marketing team. Um, and from there, I kind of bounced around in the marketing department. Um, did just about every job. Um, with the exception of public relations director. Um, I, I kind of handled merchandising, which was cross-selling at the resort, partnership marketing uh, during the time, which was American Ski Company. We had a lot of relationships with companies like BMW, uh, Anheuser-Busch, um, Sprint. You know, was that They were a big sponsor of our uh, learning centers um, across the seven Eastern American Ski Company resorts. So, And then eventually got moved up into like a, more of marketing coordinators, kind of like second in charge. Um, and that was right around when Peak Resorts bought us. What was that transition like, Greg, from American Skiing Company to Peak Resorts? Was Peak Resorts still finding its identity then? And and it, it Mount Snow became their flagship after they bought it. But was it was it just sort of coming into its own to, to be this kind of organized entity that it became? What was that transition like? Yeah, it um, well, it was the first time that I had ever gone through anything like that. Um, it's, you know, Mount Snow during the American Ski Company period um, really didn't get a lot of 
capital improvements over the time. American Ski Company had, you know, was kind of faltering and uh, we knew that the the resorts, you know, they were kind of being sold off one by one and we knew eventually we were going to be sold. And it was um, welcomed, I would say, by majority of the staff. We didn't know much about Peak Resorts at the time, um, but we were excited because we knew that Mount Snow was going to be um, Peak's flagship mountain. We were definitely the largest um, property that they had purchased, um, Mr. Boyd and their team obviously knew a lot about snowmaking. And, um, that was the biggest area of Mount Snow at the time with American Ski Company was really going after, was trying to expand their snowmaking, uh, plans. And they had kind of hit some walls with, uh, you know, we wanted to draw, we have a huge reservoir that's right, you know, literally a mile from the bottom of, of the North face over there. And, and really that was the main goal, but we were just kind of couldn't do anything there with um, environmentalists and a number of other, another restrictions and peak came on board and, and immediately invested heavily into snowmaking um, with fan guns. And then down the line, we ended up getting a huge uh, snowmaking pond. Yeah. Peak really, their investments in Mount Snow were really impressive. Uh, also impressive was just some of the marketing innovations that came out of that time. I hear that you're the guy responsible for $17 lift tickets on St. Patty's Day. Tell us that story. Yeah. Um, so um, so when I became the marketing director, when Peak Resorts bought us, um, you know, Kelly Pollack was uh, the general manager and she remained on. And then, um, you know, I kind of moved into the marketing director role and the, uh, the $17 lift ticket, um, idea came about in, in, in a marketing meeting one day and really didn't know what to expect behind it. You know, St. Patrick's day was a, a midweek day. It was always a, a holiday, but you know, we never really did anything around it. And Kelly gave me the opportunity to, to try something new. And, uh, you know, that day, that first year, I remember the Chamber of Commerce director, who is now a state representative, um, Laura Sibilia, calling me uh, at about 8.45 in the morning saying that there was this enormous line of cars at the one traffic light in <laughs> all of Vermont in, in Wilmington. Uh, it's just this four corners that you take a right-hand turn to get up to Mount Snow. And she's, she told me that it was backed up for miles um, <laughs> with people just coming up. And we knew we had a home run. The first two years of the St. Patrick's Day promotion, um, I think were our two busiest midweek non-holiday days. Um, we had huge numbers. You know, it was like a good Saturday. Uh, the second year, Stuart, was actually quite funny. This is a one of my most memorable days ever at Mount Snow. Um, we had an ice storm a few days beforehand, and it um, it didn't impact anything that was going on throughout the week, but that second year temperatures were um, up towards 40. It was a beautiful bluebird day. And um, around nine, I think it was 9.45, 9.30, we had a major power outage on the mountain. Every single one of our lifts went down, um, but our buildings were still on. So it wasn't a power outage in town. It was a power outage somewhere on the mountain. What had happened Birch trees, as you know, um, you know, they're very flexible. And we had some birch trees that led up to the summit off of a, a trail called South Bowl. 
and a birch tree uh, in the sunlight uh, lost its ice all at once and sprung back up and snapped the uh, main power line to the summit, which was the main source of power to drive all of our lifts. Now, all of our lifts have diesel backups, so we were able to kind of operate those, but um, it took us a while. We didn't, we don't, nobody really likes to run on diesel backups and, and it makes for a very slow um, process. So it took us a little while to get everybody off and um, safely, but it was, again, it was like 45 degrees and sunny, so nobody really mind and the tickets were $17. But everybody came down to the base area. I remember calling our food and beverage director. I'm on the fourth floor of the Mount Snow Base Lodge looking at this chaos, watching hordes of people come in and our lifts are stopped. So we opened the bar a little bit earlier and we had one of the best food and beverage days we ever had. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> so um, and we ended up keeping the lifts open until five that day. And uh, it was it was an awesome day. So, uh, yeah, $17 lift tickets. Um that Mount Snow will always be one of my favorite uh, things I ever did. Yeah, there's not much that beer can't fix, really, when you come down to it. <laughs> as long as you right. get the taps flowing, no, that was that was a brilliant move. Um, so you were at Mount Snow for several years. Sounds like you had a lot of fun there. I uh, grew yeah. a lot there. And then you had the opportunity to be general manager at Mad River, Ohio. I think a lot of people are surprised to even hear there's skiing in Ohio. Uh, but how did that opportunity come up, and why did you decide to make that move? Yeah, so um, Tim Boyd, who is our CEO, and Jesse Boyd, who um, was basically in charge of operations in the Northeast, um, approached me um, on a Monday morning. My wife, at I don't believe we, we weren't married. Maybe we were. I can't remember exactly the time frame. Yeah, we were married. I'm sorry. Um, we had gone to Mexico for vacation, and it was in May or so. And... Uh, my phone was dead um, down in Mexico, didn't work. But when I got back into the States, my phone had kind of blew up with people saying that Tim and Jesse were, were asking about me all week long, um, about my uh, tenure and you know operations and stuff. And so I knew something was up. And sure enough, I had a, a note from Tim that asked me to meet him and Jesse in my office on, on Monday morning. And uh, I knew that we had some changes that were going on in the company, um, at, particularly at a few resorts, um, Atatash and, and Boston Mills Brandywine, actually, at the time. Um, and he came into my office and, and he said, do you know why I'm here? And, and I said, well, I know that there's some changes going on. So, I, you know, and friends have kind of queued me up. So I think, you know, are you here to offer me a job to run Boston Mills Brandywine? And he said, <laughs> no. And I said, OK, I'm. Um, Atatash? And he's like, no. And I'm like, okay, I didn't really think I was ready for that. I'm like, if you're here to fire me, I'm like, I just got back from vacation and that would stink. And he's like, laughed. He's like, no, we wanted to go to Columbus, Ohio and run Mad River. My wife went to Ohio State and her family um, was lived there in Columbus. And that's where she grew up to ski. So the opportunity to go back, not only run um, a really um, – at the time was a very um, profitable and good business in the portfolio. Um, but be close to family. We were just starting the conversation about having kids. So having grandma there was a no brainer for us. And, um, you know, at the time I hadn't really even thought about being a general manager. I really was my career path. I'd only been the marketing director for three years. 
I was hoping to expand into maybe um, based on where Peak was going into different roles in marketing. But uh, the opportunity to run your own ski resort was something that I, I still to this day, I can't thank Tim enough for giving me the opportunity because it was awesome. Um, I enjoyed my time at Mad River very much so. And what were your impressions of Midwest ski culture, Greg? Were you familiar with it from talking to your wife? What, what did you think when you showed? Because Mad River, I, I think, has a vertical drop of, what, 300 feet? It's, feet. it's a very different thing than Mount Snow, which is oh. a really big, impressive mountain in southern Vermont. Yeah, no, it, I had no idea <laughs> what I was doing. Um, I, I, I knew, I mean, you're skiing, skiing, and you're selling people sliding on snow and lifts and snow making them. But um, Mad River had you know your very short season so you're pretty much looking at mid-december to mid-march um so you're you're you know about 75 80 days of operation and it's full on out like the whole time you're there you're running um it's it's open 9 a.m to 9 30 and then we were open until 3 a.m on 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 fridays and so oh, wow night. yeah that's fun um so night skiing i found to be a completely different entity um that was something that I was not familiar with at all, um, but it was the main source of our, our revenue um, and kids programs. So in the Midwest, uh, especially at Mad River, we ran um, a lot of school programs. And that's kind of my wife, um, who also works um, not anymore, but worked in the ski industry. Um, she kind of headed up our school and groups programs. And that was a big business for us. Um, we had local schools from uh, suburbia Columbus, uh, places like Dublin and New Albany, really high-end um, suburbs of, of Columbus coming to Mad River for ski programs on Tuesday nights, Wednesday nights, and then on Friday nights, we would have a, a group called Jones and Hastings that brought um, 22 full-on tour buses to Mad River and descended upon us with hundreds and hundreds of middle school kids, huge, huge school programs. Um, and, and they all rented, you know, so they're all coming, they go through a rental program, they do lessons. Um, and it was kind of part of their criteria. They would have to take a couple lessons and then they were there from five o'clock until nine 30. Uh, they would load their buses, go home and get picked up by mom and dad. Um, it was a really big business for us. And then we decided to start college nights on Friday nights. <laughs> and we basically just sent Facebook messages to every Ohio State student there was. And all of a sudden, this enormous party happened on Friday nights called college nights. That's amazing. So we would have the high school students leaving at 930. We actually closed the mountain from 930 to 1030 to groom it. Mm-hmm. We did speed grooming on uh, about a, Mad River is about 144 acres of total land, but it's about, I would say, 80 acres of skiable terrain. So we would do speed grooming and I would actually get in a grooming cat and do this and watch as the 20 buses left and then the hordes of college kids came in um, and the bar was open for that what we called the power hour um, <laughs> where kids would just come in um, have a couple drinks and then uh, basically we're changing over high school kids rentals gear to college kids. And then we had, you know, uh, kids ski until two, two in the morning. So it was a, 
it was a, it was a fun atmosphere. Um, and, uh, unfortunately the loft there, which was the cool A-frame, uh, bar, um, three months after I left to come back East, it burnt down. Unfortunately. Oh, bummer. Um, bummer. Yeah. Huge fire actually. Very, uh, it was so, uh, my leaving was so new people. I, I was one of the first people, uh, called about it and, oh, wow. uh, um, ended up, you know, letting my boss know that that's what's going on. Um, and it, 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 you know, that building that was built in 1954 or 1950s or something like that. So it, it went pretty quick. Wow. So, well, it, it sounds like you had an interesting experience in Ohio and, and Midwestern skiing is definitely a different thing. And we'll get back to that in a moment with Granite Peak. But after four years at Mad River, you moved back to New England for a marketing role. Uh, what made you decide to take that job? And more importantly, what made you decide to move back to New England uh, to be back closer to those larger resorts? Yeah. So, um, so I had talked, uh, the, the Northeast job, um, it, it was stuff that was something that my wife and I, we definitely talked and hemmed and hawed over it quite a bit. We, we had our, our first child, um, Ronan, who's now seven. And, um, you know, we really enjoyed the time at Mad River and the family atmosphere that we had. Um, but, you know, looking at my career, you know, I had four years in at, at Mad River. Peak Resorts was growing. Um, you know, I, I started to get a little bit more involved with um, a lot of the overall structure of the company. Um, you know, I kept involved with marketing back east. You know, I, I kind of continue to, to monitor that while I was at Mad River. Um, and, and I knew that we were going to be kind of looking down the road of another purchase of a big resort. And that was Hunter. Um, what happened after we purchased Hunter was the creation of the peak pass. So the opportunity to kind of, to continue growing my career and moving into a, um, a role where I would have input over multiple resorts, um, was something I, I didn't, I didn't want to pass up. Um, you know, Jesse Boyd, who I continued to report to, um, throughout my career at peak gave me the opportunity to move anywhere. Um, really as long as I was within, you know, uh, a comfortable spot to any of the resorts, I could work from home. I could work at a resort. Um, and you know, we spent 10 years at Mount snow. Um, we enjoyed it. We still have a very close circle of friends there. Um, but one of the things that Mad River did for us is that it had a lot of amenities at our disposal, you know, Walmarts and, and grocery stores. And when you have kids, you have diapers and needs that are, are a little bit different. Um, and Mount Snow is a really, it's a rural, rural town. It has more restaurants and, and bars as opposed to convenience stuff. So going to uh, grocery shopping, there was a, uh, you know, a full day, 45 minute jaunt to New Hampshire, believe it or not. So we were considering moving back down there. We were kind of looking at Keene originally, but uh, I wanted to check out North Conway and I ended up going up there. We were renting a place while we were looking for places down in Keene and we ended up falling in love with it. Actually, our son really fell in love with it. We had, you know, walking distance to downtown North Conway, which was a, a beautiful spot in, quaint, you know, your typical, I mean, the best ski town in all of New England, in my opinion. 
so we we really loved it in North Conway, um, but the job itself really uh, gave me an opportunity to have my fingers in in a lot of different brands of our resorts, and that to me was something that I cherished. Um, and, and one of the reasons why I went to North Conway was because of of Atitash and and Wildcat. Atitash has always been associated with Mount Snow for as long as I've ever been working in that in that role and that life out there. Um, and I enjoyed Atitash a lot, and I always felt that it was one of the brands that could have, it could really pop. Um, and uh, and I liked working up there with the, that team and the Wildcat team. So so. You mentioned the Peak Pass and the rollout of the Peak Pass once you bought Hunter Mountain. That pass, it, it, we have to appreciate. We have to go back to 2015, 2016 to appreciate how ahead of its time that was. Vail did have their Epic Pass, of course, and they were slowly expanding it, but they were not in the Northeast yet. This was the first multi-pass that was a season pass in the Northeast. You also had the Max Pass come out around the same time, but that was a frequency product. This was a full season pass to all of those mountains, and there were some good mountains. There was Hunter, there was Mountain Snow. Adatash, Wildcat, uh, you had Crouchett in there. Um, so th- this was a really nice portfolio. Tell us about your involvement in that and some of the marketing around that pass. Yeah, so we, um, uh, after the the purchase of Hunter, um, it was kind of a, 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 we kind of, Hunter closed and then we had, you know, kind of already this Northeast pass with Mount Snow that allowed you to go to Attached and stuff, but we didn't. It was it was a pricey product, and and we kind of just added Hunter onto that, and um, you know, but we needed to come out with something that was a little bit more um, intriguing for the following year. So we had a meeting in January and um, really discussed all of our different options, and we felt that what the we looked at all the past products and all of our, our portfolio of resorts, which, which like you said, included Adatash and Wildcat and Hunter and, um, and then JFBB in, uh, in Pennsylvania and Mount Snow had the highest price point, but all the other resorts really had a product that was around the, a, a very affordable $600 mark. Um, so we kind of looked at that and, and said, okay, if we can afford, if we can make a past product at that, $600, point. are we shooting ourselves in the foot here at Mount Snow? Um, and the answer was no. You know, we, we looked at it and said, you know, we're going to, a lot of people are going to come and they're going to visit other resorts and we're going to get them to spread out. And, um, you know, we had, we had these nice little pods of markets for us that um, allowed people to take advantage of that. You know, you look at Mount Snow and Hunter, um, and a little bit to JFBB, they pull from the mounts from the New York metropolitan area. You know, JFBB pulls from Pennsylvania and or Philadelphia. But if you're a Philadelphia skier, you know, a jaunt to Hunter or a jaunt to Mount Snow is is attractive. Um, a Boston skier goes more 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 so goes to New Hampshire, but a jaunt to Mount Snow is actually just as far as it is to go to Wildcat or or um, Atitash. So we kind of looked at it and said, well, you know, Mount Snow was going to win out of this because we had all of these different individual markets and that was kind of the melting pot. So we felt that people would still visit Mount Snow and we'd actually get more visitors to go to Mount Snow. And we did. And it it really um, was a great product that I was very happy to be a part of. Um, 
you know, we, in a, in a matter of two and a half months, we pulled together a website, uh, we pulled together, um, you know, campaign graphics and we all did, and it was pretty much a hundred percent in house, um, which was great. And, uh, you know, it, it, you know, it was a competitor of Epic. It was a, a competitor down the line when Icon came out because those were offering multi-mountain resorts in New England, but really focusing on the West. And they only had a handful of resorts in New England, whereas we had a good plethora of properties that you could drive to. And that was our main focus was, was you know, stay in the Northeast and you could still drive to these resorts. And then we picked up the... Um, the snow time properties down in, in Southern Pennsylvania and even made it even more attractive for those guests um, to, to travel up to resorts like Hunter and Mount Snow. Looking back at that portfolio, Greg, one of the things that I thought was pretty brilliant was the drifter pass. And this was yeah. a pass for, correct me if I'm wrong, 20 to 29 year olds. And it was a pretty good discount. I believe it was in the four to $500 range, the yeah. kind of price where, you know, if you're a, a, a kid starting out and your first job out of college, you could feasibly afford this thing. And and to me, that was so smart because that's the time of life when most people fall out of skiing, right? Because the, their parents yeah. have been paying for it. Then suddenly they're sort of, they're starting their career. They don't really have any money and they kind of fall out of it until they're older and have the money to start going again. This allowed you to not lose that demographic. This is my perception of it. Uh, but talk a little bit about the Drifter Pass uh, and why you did that and, and how well that was received. Uh, Drifter Pass was the best pass that we had. Um, it was super fun to work on too. Um, so with the peak pass, you know, we sold majority of our peak passes. That was the, oh man, now I gotta think about it. Explorer, Ranger, uh, man, Scout, which was a little guy and then a midweek traveler pass. So those were the names. Um, and then, so you had that campaign, which was primarily in the spring. So we did a big peak pass push for people to renew their passes or purchase pass. We had a payment plan um, and that was going after a majority of our pass holders. Um, but then in the fall, we, we switched gears and we did the drifter pass, which was at a three ninety nine price point. It was 18 to 29 year olds. Um, and Mount snow and an American ski company used to have this, this, uh, college rep program and we continued that at at mount snow um long after american ski company left and we kind of rolled that into the drifter program so we incorporated um and had hundred hundreds of i think it was like 140 40 college reps um that would receive a free pass if they sold 15 or more drifter passes and we incentivized them to sell them by selling them at $20 less. So it was a $379 price point. And they all had promo codes. If they sold 15 or more, they got their free pass. If they sold 30 or more, they started making $20 for every pass that they sold. Um, it was huge. The Drifter Pass became our number one pass product uh, across the company. And um, we would sell it through the middle of December. And it, it just made a huge, uh, huge amount of money. And it also brought kind of like a, a younger culture to our ski resorts. Um, you know, Mount Snow had this enormous park called Corinthia. Um, 
you know, so you could see the vibe of our ski resorts in this with this drifter clientele kind of get a, a little bit younger um, and in terms of a demographic. And yeah, you're right. You know, that that is the time where a lot of people drop out. Um, and especially those when you're done with college, that's the time frame where you see a lot of kids drop out because they're not they're not they can't get the college passes that a lot of ski resorts offer with their um, college ID. And then they're also, you know, just getting into the workforce. So the expendable income that you have really drops down. Um, so the, the opportunity to offer a, a cheap product, um, relatively affordable, um, really worked out for us uh, in the end. I was very sad, very sad to see that pass go. Um, I thought it was a, a home run. And uh, I thought that Vail might have decided to pick that up and keep that going, but decided not to. Yeah, I, I did too. And uh, they did keep the midweek pass, uh, which I was surprised by. Um, and they made a Northeast specific pass, but that really takes us to Vail. So in July, 2019, Vail bought all 17 peak resorts. Uh, what was your reaction to that news, Greg? Um, <laughs> I remember I was on my way to the gym um, to work out. I was like a, when I found out it was in June, um, a few of us found out uh, way, way early. And I was on my way to the gym and the gym shares a parking lot with a brewery. And somehow <laughs> my car didn't go to the gym. It went to the brewery. Um, <laughs> and I had a beer instead. Because um, working for the Boyd family was awesome. I really can't say enough about Jesse and Tim and, and the opportunities that they gave my family and, and how they treated my family too. We got, we, we really had a, a great run with them. Um, and it made sense. Like I was very happy for them um, because I knew that it was going to give the resorts in general, a big uplift in capital. Vail's a big company. They know what they're doing. Um, but for me personally, it was a sad day because I knew, you know, Jesse all along said that he, you know, maybe retained who knows what's going on but it was you know you're not gonna have the family stick around and and i also knew of of what vale has done with other resorts at the top level i mean i was an executive within peak resorts and um they have big corporation and and they have uh you know their own office building peak resorts didn't have office buildings it, it had you worked at your home or you worked at a ski resort um so it was sad because i knew that that uh, my time with them, with the Boyds, was going to be short at that point. Um, but it also, it started making me think about what I wanted to do with my career next. Um, because, you know, I wasn't sure what was going to go on. You have to carry on a good a good face to your, your team. A lot of my friends were asking me how I felt if I was going to lose my job or if I was going to be rolled into another position. Um, but I immediately started looking, <laughs> I'm not going to okay. lie. Um, you know, I, I felt that I had a good job overseeing 17 different marketing departments. I had two guys that worked directly for me at the peak level. Um, but didn't know, you know, but I, I definitely started to, to keep my eyes open and, and it was a discussion internally between the, I would say my direct team. 
Um, I was hopeful for the opportunity to work with Vale. I thought that they have some really interesting stuff. This is all pre-COVID. Um, and, and, you know, also it could have opened up some opportunities to work at some of the other properties that they had across the, the company. Um, but in the end, it didn't work out. Um, I found out in November that they weren't going to keep me. Um, I worked a, basically a contract out through August of that year, uh, of this past year. And then um, and that's kind of how I landed out here. So that takes us to Granite Peak. So tell us how this opportunity came up and why you decided that, that was a good fit for you. Yeah. So, um, so like I said, you know, with Vail, I, I had a, a, you know, separation agreement and worked out that contract, but, um, you know, throughout the time, definitely you're, you know, you're free to look of, of course. And, um, I had interviewed for a number of GM jobs, um, and was actually in Washington, um, and had interviewed for a job out in Spokane. Um, and Kelly Pollack, who is the NSA president, who was my boss at Mount Snow, and is pretty much my, I would say, mentor of things, um, reached out to me and let me know about a job at uh, here at Granite Peak. Um, Charles Skinner, who's the owner, uh, is on the NSAA board. And Kelly mentioned to me that he was looking for an assistant general manager and also a marketing director. Uh, so I hadn't really thought about it. I was actually out in Spokane, like I said, interviewing for this other job. Um, I had talked to Mr. Skinner, um, a few weeks prior. I had also been just off of another interview, a five hour interview for another job. And I didn't really think twice about the Wisconsin opportunity at that time. Um, but then I started looking into it a little bit more realized that there was some really cool stuff that was going on at this ski resort in particular. And I actually called Charles up and said, I would like to talk to him again because I hadn't really digested a lot of the stuff that I had interviewed with them for the first time around. And they actually had offered me to come out for a second interview. And I wanted to talk to him again before I even committed to doing that because, because it was flying to, to Wisconsin in the midst of a pandemic. Um, I did talk to him, um, and my wife and I, who came along for the ride out to Washington, decided to skip going back to New Hampshire and flew to Milwaukee and drove out and did a 24-hour interview with, with Charles and his HR director. And I will tell you, flying in the midst of a pandemic in May was quite nice. Um, yeah. <laughs> there's no one on planes, uh, we traveled across the country, um, you know, back and forth. And it was a, it was a, definitely you're, you're very cautious about what you're doing. And, um, but, uh, the planes were empty and it was, uh, relatively easy to do. Um, but once I got here, Stuart, the, it, it opened my eyes to this property. Um, you know, Granite Peak is, from a lift infrastructure, so above and beyond any any Midwest ski resort that I've been to. Um, it's 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 above and beyond some Northeast resorts that I've been to. That's what sold me on this place was the six pack high speed detachable chairlift and two 
high speed quads that are on the extremity of the ski resort. We can move people quickly and you can get in as many laps as you want here. Um, and Charles has really invested heavily into the infrastructure of this ski resort. And um, not only from a, a lift standpoint, but snowmaking wise, and he really gets it. Um, snowmaking and lifts are imperative to Midwest skiing. And, uh, you know, in talking with him, we, we, I was really impressed. And, um, my wife's job while I, we were here was to find out, you know, to really just explore the area because we didn't really know much about Wausau and learn if we could live here and if we would be happy. Um, we got on the plane and her answer was yes. And my answer, um, at the, you know, I didn't take the job immediately, but, uh, you know, we were very, very impressed with, with the overall area out here. So let's talk about Charles Skinner a little bit more. If you look at the old Granite Peak maps from before he bought the ski area 20 years ago, it was a rinky dink little place. It had yeah. maybe 25 or 30% of the footprint that it has now and, and an ancient lift fleet. He also owns Lutzen Mountains, which is the largest ski area in neighboring Minnesota. And he's transformed Granite Peak into the largest ski area in Wisconsin. Uh, talk a little bit about Charles and about his leadership and that track record of investment commitment to his mountains and how that influenced you to take the job and, and know that Granite Peak was the right place for you. Yeah. So, um, you know, you look at the timeline of, of when Charles bought the property and what has gone into it here. Uh, and it's incredibly impressive. Um, you know, he expanded the terrain to basically double the size of the mountain, even triple the size of the mountain. And he did it in a very strategic way um, in going out east and then going to the west. Um, you know, the the footprint here is it's on um, Rib Mountain State Park. So we have an interesting relationship with the park and we can talk about that in a sec. But, you know, he has a general vision and a master plan of, you know, what goes into expanding and continuing to to you know make skiing interesting and continuously invest back into the property and keep things um keep things fresh so that every year you come back and there's something new or something um some new dynamic to the ski resort um you know but charles is is he's not on the ground you know he he lives in duluth which is about halfway between lutzen and granite peak um, he owns Lutzen with um, his brother-in-law, so he's a 50% uh, share owner up there, and then he outright owns Granite Peak. So I report directly to him. I talked to him just about um, he was here this past weekend. Um, you know, talk to him every day via either text or an email. Um, you know, we get on the phone probably once or twice a week um, and talk about um, you know operations and everything. But uh, you know, he. He was really great in that bringing me on, he allowed me to kind of gave me the keys, but he's also given me a lot of advice as to things that to look at. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a, a, a marketing guy. I'm a guest services guy. I'm more of um, added value and kind of base area operations and, and, and those types of things. Um, snowmaking is still, you know, an area that I've, I've learned a lot through peak resorts about, um, 
but I'm not going to be the most technical guy. I can certainly strategize um, when it comes down to snowmaking. So he's been really helpful in talking about that and maximizing our pumping capacity and, um, and really you know, shooting for the stars in terms of our snowmaking operations. But uh, he's been a, a great person to work with. Um, you know, we, we butt heads sometimes on, on certain things um, uh, on about, you know, operations and, and, and programs and hours and, and that sort of stuff. But, it, you know, the rapport has been good. And um, the staff really has been a, a lot of fun to work with here at Granite Peak. So it sounds like you're settling in. I grew up in the in the Midwest, in the Upper Midwest, and my sense is that the Upper Midwest is very different from the Lower Midwest ski areas of Ohio, Indiana, Illinois. Uh, the ski culture up there is is a little more uh, resort like. It's it's really there's a lot of uh, more destination type mountains. Even though folks from other regions might not appreciate that because they look at the statistics and the mountains are smaller, the people in the Midwest very much view them as destinations or at least regional destinations. Uh, but just curious from your point of view. Um, your impressions so far of Wisconsin ski culture and how that's different from what you experienced in Ohio and also what you experienced working out in the Northeast. Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's interesting to talk about destination and, and, you know, ski resorts like the upper, you know, the UP and upper Michigan and even Lutzen, you know, those areas like Lutzen is, is, is a gorgeous ski resort. I'm, I'm excited to get up there. I was up there early in the year when they were first starting to make snow um, they weren't open. They were opening the weekend right before I was there, um, or right after, excuse me. Um, but it's very much a destination, um, resort. You, you, you get up there and there's not much around other than these gorgeous mountains that overlook, um, you know, Lake Superior and the UP is the same way where it's, you know, there's not much up there. Um, Wausau is a, a, a big town you know, it's a city and it's got 40,000 inhabitants, um, so it's got a lot of amenities, it's got a lot of hotels and beautiful restaurants and eclectic downtown. Um, so we're kind of like a, a nice middle ground where we can be a destination, but we can also be a, a day trip. And so we're, um, we draw from Chicago, you know, Milwaukee, Madison area. Um, and we're starting to see more and more people come from this uh, Minneapolis and St. Paul region, which is about two and a half hours to our west um which is a nice thing and green bay um so the culture around here it's not that different from the northeast i'm not you know a there are definitely more and more beginners i think it's um we see a lot more rentals um here uh which is is typical of the midwest i think a lot of people will rent uh this year we're seeing a lot of first timers you know a lot of people with coming out of the woodwork to get outside to enjoy the environment to do some recreation in the outdoors. Um, but overall, Stuart, I don't really think it's it's that different, especially I would say from our, our some of our resorts that I'm familiar like like Crotchet Mountain or our smaller resorts in Pennsylvania, you know, the the culture here isn't very different there. Um, we're one thing that has shocked me over the course of this year here at Granite is that I never realized how much of a uh, culture down in Chicago. Uh, Chicago has a lot of um, Polish background and Russian, and we're, we're starting, I'm seeing more and more like of these um, Northern European 
dialects and, and languages that are visiting our resorts. And um, that's very new to me, you know, to have to have that kind of culture here. And it's great. You know, we're having a lot of uh, we've had a bunch of races and just a lot of different languages that I've never really uh, experienced out east visiting our ski resort. So it sounds like you're adapting. Uh, one of the things that you've brought to Granite Peak is the Ronin Report. Why don't you tell us about that? <laughs> yeah, uh, the Ronin Report. Yes. Yeah, so, um, so my son's seven. He this place is his backyard now. Um, and Ronin um, grew up. I would say really mastered his skills over at Wildcat and skiing, and now he can ski anything here at Granite Peak and it's great. I come into work on a Friday. Um, he's been having most Fridays off and he comes with me and he's gone for the day. Uh, I had to get him an Apple watch just so I could keep track of him to be able to get a hold of him, but also to keep track of his vert because I'm very jealous. The kid skis full day on Fridays and Mondays uh, sometimes. And he has tracked uh, his busiest, best day was 25,000 vertical feet wow. um, at 700 foot granite peak. So, um, so Ronan really um, likes YouTube. He started watching these YouTubers um, and wanted to be a YouTuber. And um, so one night I was talking with our design agency, a marketing agency about about it. And, and we were chuckling. We were actually, this was not a work meeting. We were actually doing a virtual cocktail hour. And, and, uh, I don't remember who brought it up or whose idea it was maybe, you know, but we started saying we should just do, we should allow him to do snow reports. And I said, well, let's call it the Ronin report. And it kind of came to fruition that way. Um, so yeah, we're allowing him to do these little videos every, we're not doing them every week, but every few weeks, um, that give a little insight into our operations, what's coming up for the weekend, maybe what's coming up for the, um, few weeks and we, you know, he's seven. So we have some fun with it. And, uh, it was cool to see, you know, it kind of get picked up by the likes of like Hallie O'Brien and, and her, you know, nationally respected snow report show. Um, and you know, Hallie is, is great. I've known her for a long time and it was just, it was really nice of her to do that. And we've had some fun with it. So, um, but my entire staff knows Ronan and, you know, my dad, ran a swimming pool when I was little and I had the keys to that place. And he's, he pretty much did the same thing. He goes around, he gets, gets his brownies and cheese curds and stuff by batting his cute little eyes at the cashiers and walks past them. So, <laughs> so it's, it's fun. It's fun to have the, the Charles has allowed me to kind of have the family welcome here, which is great. Well, that's a lot of fun. I will embed a Ronin report in the article that accompanies this podcast so everyone can check that out <laughs> and subscribe. Um, so let's talk about the mountain here, Greg. You talked about that amazing lift system. And and if you haven't looked at the trail map, folks who are listening, it, it's it's really incredible, the infrastructure that, that Mr. Skinner's built out over the past 20 years. Like Greg mentioned, a, a high-speed six-pack, two high-speed quads. Um, is the sense, Greg, that this is a complete lift system or are there places on the mountain where you could use a supplemental lift on really busy days? Um, I think it's a pretty complete lift system. It, it, there wouldn't be anywhere that I, I think that I could put a lift to get to another area, um, with, without it crossing over another point, maybe from the bottom of Comet, which is our six pack over to the top of Dasher. But that's really, 
minor. Um, I, I do really like the Blitz Inlift, which is our mid, um, it has a mid station. Um, people here call it the, you know, call the mid station to the top, the yo-yo, because they'll, um, that services expert terrain and the mid station services beginner terrain. So a lot of our um, more seasoned uh, pass holders or a midweek pass holders will, will yo-yo um, on any given day. Today's a Monday. You know, I'm sure there's people out there that are going to just lap it. We got a few inches of snow here the last couple of days and they'll lap Sundance um, using the mid station of Blitzen. Um, you know, down the line, you know, there's, there's a, we have an expansion plan in place that has some lifts um, in addition, but that's more to, to those expanded trails. Um, so I would say, you know, if we look at down the line, Blitzen would be a lift that we would, you know, look at maybe overhauling and, and updating, but I don't think we would change the, um, where the, the, the points would start or end. Um, there was a lift here that kind of started at the Blitzen. It was a double, it was an interesting chairlift actually. It kind of, you sat side by side. So your feet were facing not straight ahead, but um, to the sides, which was a, a unique lift. And that was decommissioned about eight, nine years ago, I think. Um, so overall, I think it's a pretty complete system. Um, like I said, I think maybe Blitzen, you know, a few years down the road here, maybe gets a, an overhaul or an update. Um, you know, we, we have two non-detachable lifts uh, in, in Blitzen and Santa that service really the beginner train. But, you know, I'm, I'm really impressed and really happy with, with the lifts. You know, the loading is a little different. I, I don't think the loading at these property, at these lifts are, is not, is the best. So that might be an update that I'd like to do down the road. And that's a bunch of earth work, really. So we'll talk about that expansion in a minute, Greg. But first, uh, what's up with all the reindeer? Cupid, Blitzen, Comet, Dasher. Uh, what's what's the story behind the lift, lift system names? I, I don't know. I, I think, Char, you know, I asked him that the other day. Um, and he just said, it, you know, it's winter. It's, it's, it was just, there's no real story behind it. I think it just was, is something that he associated with winter and um, just went down that route. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, uh, the trails here, the names of them, um, you know, have been incorporated since the history of the resort back to the Rib Mountain ski days. Um, and then there's a few like Caroline and Charlotte shoot. Those are um, uh, his, his daughters. Um, Carmi's Corlier, uh, which is a little narrow passage that use that plays homage to a previous owner. Um, so, but for the most part, I think the trail names kind of just, just flow and I don't really think there's any real history to them. Uh, well, if you, if you do find out, I would love to hear the backstory in a future edition of the Ronin Report. Okay. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> so back in 2015, uh, Mr. Skinner floated an expansion plan that would have added a dozen runs, another high-speed quad and slopeside lodging. That particular expansion never happened, but my understanding is that you were brought on in part so that he could refocus on that. What is the vision for the current expansion plan and where are we at in that process? Yeah, so the expansion plan, as, as I said, we, we, we sit on Department of Natural Resources land, uh, which runs the Rib Mountain State Park. So um, little unique in that, you know, the U.S. forest, which has more than like 100 ski areas on its land, um, 
the Wisconsin DNR only has one ski resort, you know, on state land. Um, so that, and they don't have any dedicated, you know, staff to that or anything like that. Um, so we're kind of unique in, in that. Um, so the expansion plan is kind of an undertaking, not only of Granite Peak, but it's really a community driven program to further enhance the state park visitation to the, the overall area, um, you know, with a shared goal of enhanced outdoor recreation that includes skiing, um, but also has other opportunities in, in it as well, including mountain biking and, um, uh, you know, hiking trails and then lodging. So this is kind of a, a, a program that's driven a little bit more by the community and, and Granite Peak and Charles are, are, are a piece of that um, overall plan. Um, so yeah, COVID kind of, kind of halted that for a little bit as well as some other things, but it's definitely very much back on the um, game plan. Um, we're, you know, I'm not as involved with it. Like you said, I kind of was brought on so that Charles could really focus more of his energies on that program, which is what he's doing these days. Um, so I'm kind of brought up to speed as to where things are. Um, right now, you know, we're working with companies like the SE Group on the overall look of it. You know, mountain biking plays a key role in that. And you know, I think we're looking at, at mountain biking as a, as a key aspect to create a year round program. Um, but that's a part of the expansion plan. So it's, you know, looking at not necessarily like if, if you look at mountain biking at, at ski resorts, a lot of them kind of incorporated it after they had their trails built. This cool opportunity would incorporate it as you're building these trails. So, so actually working in mountain bike trails, it would be a little bit more focused in on that aspect um, and maybe have it, you know, separate and, and the skiing would be second, but then we would have a ton of other, you know, ski trails um, that would be, you know, really focusing on the ski atmosphere, which, which is exciting. You know, um, it, it has, it, it does expand both East and West um, with a few lifts and, um, and some more, um, beginner and blue terrain for our guests. So you're saying that this expansion would add trails to either end of the resort? Yeah, that's the, the, the overall plan. It has trails on, um, the Eastern side, um, which is off of our, uh, what's called Cupid lift. And then it has a whole other completely separate pod over west of what's called Dasher. And that would be really a, a separate pod that would have like one interconnecting trail that leads you back to the Dasher area. And then to get back over to the main area, you'd have to go up Dasher and then come back. So that's where, you know, I think down the road, you would have your mountain bike hub, you'd have maybe a ski, a ski school and some other things over in that neck of the woods. But it is an overall plan, and I think, you know, it's, it's starting to gain some speed again now that uh, I'm here, Charles can focus in on, on it, but also, um, you know, the DNR and the local community has some, um, some board members that are starting to, to get it going again, um, which is great. And, you know, I think that they have a very um, aggressive timeline um, in which they're, they're looking to, to get some things done here in this next calendar year. So from a skiing point of view, what could you tell us about each of those pods? How many trails, what kind of lift, what kind of trails? Um, 
I can give you a little insights onto it, you know, so on the Western or the Eastern side, I think there's like, you know, an additional three trails with some glades. Um, on the West is more, more like, I think it's seven trails with glades again. Um, and it has a number of lift options, um, that are coming in. I know Charles has talked about a gondola, which, you know, I'm not, Personally, I, I like gondolas. I think that they make a nice amenity to any ski resort. I tend to personally like to ski on and ski off of lifts as opposed to putting my skis into a gondola and, and then back out. But with you. Um, what gondolas do do is they offer um, a little bit more more year-round programming. Um, people, maybe there's a restaurant up at the top. You can take a gondola up no matter what the weather's like. It's a unique experience. So I get that. Um so that, that has been posed, and I think there's a couple smaller lifts that are more geared towards beginners um, and, um, and accessing even the mountain bike terrain that might be like a separate event-style lift that would just be, um, you know, used for maybe mountain biking um, in the summertime. So are we looking at a full 700 vertical foot drop on these new pods, or is it going to be a little bit shorter? Um, no, yeah, the, the eastern ones for sure – that would be um, they would kind of come back over to cupid so that would be a full 700 foot vertical um the ones on the west uh west hand side pretty much the entire ridge of rib mountain state park it's it's, it is a big rib is is pretty seven much 700 feet and then you come kind of come down to this flat so i would think that they would be 700 feet i think they're a little bit more gradual you look at our trail map we're we're pretty steep up top and then kind of flatten out at the bottom. I think this terrain bodes a little bit more of a, a less grade uh, off the top. So you mentioned the new pods would have some glades in them. I got really excited, Greg, when I looked at the old Granite Peak trail maps. There's just dozens of glades on them. Uh, then when I looked at your current trail map in preparation for this interview, I noticed they're all gone. Why were yeah. they removed from the trail map? So um, not because that they're not there. Um, if you look at the old trail map and you look at the new one, I would, would you say that the new one's a lot cleaner um, than the old one? Um, yeah, no, it's a beautiful trail map. I just, yeah. you know, if, if I was looking at this and in, 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 uh, looking for glades, I'd be like, um, I guess I don't have any. <laughs> yeah, no, we, we, we took them down and this is kind of some of the upbringing or, or strategy that I, I guess I was taught at, at peak was that, you know, you can ski anywhere. You know, if the glades are there you, and you feel like you want to go in there, you can totally ski them. Um, so 100% they're still there. Um, they are uh, relatively cleaned out. One of the things that I will say um, that I plan to do this summer is is really go through the glades here. We have a lot of dead fallen trees and just stuff that can get clean to enhance those big time. So I think next year you'll find that they will be put back onto the map. Um, I'm still learning a little bit about the Wisconsin ski statute and exactly how trail uh, trees and uh, opening and closing them is, is quote unquote decided, you know, individual States have different rules about tree train and opening and closing trails. So there are some things that I, I want to look at, you know, and putting them back. I don't know if I need to name them all or if I can just say that they're there and just depict that they're there. But like I said, I want to do a lot of, of cleaning those up because um, I think it's going to really enhance the overall tree and skiing ability of them because there is a lot of them and they are fun. 
but we can get some of these big giant maple trees that have fallen down over the course of the last couple of years out of there and they would be even better. And the glades are still signed and, and marked. If you're skiing around the mountain, you can see the entrance. Yeah, you can totally see some of the entrances. Um, I wouldn't say that they're marked. That's a, that's an area that I'm actually currently working on. Um, the trail signage at their, our ski resort, it was very, they have a lot of different signs. Um, so I tried to uh, make it universal in the size and what they look like. And I'm actually working through that as the season progresses. I'm kind of picking away at individual uh, signs across the resort. Just talk a little bit about your snowmaking capabilities, which you mentioned earlier that uh, Charles had really invested in. Um, the Midwest doesn't always get as much snow as you might want unless you're getting lake effect, but it does reliably get cold. Uh, talk about the snowmaking firepower you have there at Granite Peak and what sorts of projects are in the pipeline to improve that. Yeah, so um, two years ago, um, the team here installed a, um, a new pump station that pulls off of the rib uh, big rib river which feeds into the wisconsin river which is down down the street from from us and and is right along the wasat uh, skyline so um so that new pump station has two pumps in it um started up in november of that year the guys literally um from what i've told they finished it and then the next day they were making snow off of it wow. um, so a new pump station has um, two 30-inch intakes into a wet well uh, with two 200-horsepower pumps um, pumping into a 24-inch pipe that's a mile away. That then brings up about 7,000 gallons per minute pumping capacity. We do have room for a third pump if we ever want to get down that road, uh, which would give us about 10,000 gallons or so. So that pump station is a mile away, like I said, and then it kind of brings it up into our holding pond here. Uh, it holds, I think, about 9 million gallons when it's full, and we can draw from about six or seven of that uh, 9 million. And the water height, uh, our main pow- uh, pump house is kind of controlled by a float system um, in the wet wells. and. Then up on the hill, we have a huge plethora of different snowmaking devices here. Um, we have water sticks, we have pole cats, we have carriage guns, Ricos. Um, we have about, I think, 35 carriage guns, which are the ones that you can move around. And then we have super pole cats and pumas. And this year we bought two uh, SMI kid pole cats, which are these cute little guys. Um, <laughs> they're, uh, they're really functionable because you can kind of move them around and put them in points where you just want to really aim them um, for like uh, lift loading areas and small. We have a lot of narrow trails here. So like fan gun technology doesn't necessarily work well on those trails, whereas stick and tower guns is a lot, is a lot better. And then we also use Snowmax here, which is was very new to me, um, which allows it's a it's a component that kind of dries out your your snow and allows you to make a little bit more in marginal temperatures. And then when it is cold and you're using it, it makes a lot more snow, um, a lot quicker time frame and a lot drier snow. That was something that I, I wasn't as even on board with and uh the guy showed it to me this year and i can say that it definitely makes a difference um which is cool 
So it sounds like the snowmaking firepower is pretty impressive. Uh, what else do you have in mind, Greg, for future capital projects? Um, so um, we right now we're um, about 75% of the mountain is lit. Um, the west side of the hill, um, which is about 10 trails, is does not have lights on it, although three of the trails currently do have light towers. So I think down the road, I would like to continue to add lights to that area. Maybe not all the trails, but some of them. So that's that's one area. That's a capital improvement that I think we'll start to continue to pick away. We've also upgraded our lights across the resort, um, some of them to LEDs. And that's going to be an ongoing thing over the you know next couple of years. We'll just keep picking away at that. Um, in coming into this ski season, not really understanding exactly the traffic flow. Um, you know, this year we've had to have a lot of things outside. So I would like to enhance our outdoor dining a bit. Um, currently we have a 40 by 60 foot, um, tent that is out offering, um, sheltered seating, um, with some, um, propane heaters. We have a couple sides open, um, but that area is relatively flat and it's kind of in a, in a spot that's not like skier traffic. So I would like to enhance that with a new, a new deck, maybe some food, food opportunities over there with some heat. Um, so that's, that's one capital project that I would like to do. Um, the biggest thing, you know, Charles and the team here have done a really good job with snowmaking and the overall operations. We, we just bought a brand new light wolf pre-off grooming machine so our grooming fleet is really is really good our snowmaking team has done an excellent job you know we're going to update our some snowmaking over the summer with just you know kind of adding some more efficiency and tower guns uh, to some spots that are right now we put carriage guns out and a little bit more labor intensive but really looking at the services of our ski resort you know ways that we can enhance the traffic flow uh wayfinding signage um, we made one of our base lodges a restaurant this year and it's been well received. Um, and so that's something that we kind of threw together and now we can maybe focus in on how to better enhance that experience for our guests. Um, so this summer is going to be one where I think we're going to focus more on guest services and a little less on the overall infrastructure. And then we'll see where kind of, um, some of the expansion projects take us. And, um, you know, then maybe we get more back into the overall snowmaking and that sort of infrastructure. So lots of exciting things happening and it sounds like the resort continues to evolve. One of the things that Granite Peak did that I was most excited about over the last year is they joined the Indy Pass along with Sister Resort Lutzen. How's that partnership working out for you, Greg? It's great. I love the Indy Pass. I love working with the team, uh, the Indy Pass team and Doug Fish. Um, it's been it's been really great. You know, uh, we've seen a lot of visitors come to our resort that have never been here before, um, and it's I think it's a it's an awesome opportunity for resorts to jump on board that are not a part of these big conglomerates. Um, it's been it's been really nice, and I know. Folks are visiting Lutzen. Um, we get a kind of report um, of all the different resorts and new visitations, and we're about midway through the season. And uh, Granite and Lutzen are, are right up there with with some of the more visited resorts um, across the portfolio. And um, you know, it's nice to be kind of in that mix with the big boys of Jay and Cannon and 
and some of my old friends back out east. So um, it's been a, it's been really cool um, experience, and and the way Doug and and the team over at, at the Indy Pass program have built it, it's really user friendly and guest friendly to to do the redemption program. Um, it, it you know we sat through an hour long presentation of how to monitor it. Um, and it's been really, uh, very happy with it. We're definitely going to be back on board for it for next year. Um, I think the Indy pass has a couple exciting announcements that, uh, I am aware of for this week. So I'm excited for those. Um, and I think it's just going to continue to, uh, to be a very uh, big player in the overall industry. I'm curious to your opinion on this, Greg, cause you've been in the industry a long time and you've worked with a lot of these companies. You really understand it. Do you think that Vale and Altera are failing to fully appreciate the Midwest. And the reason I ask is if you look at Vail's offerings in the Midwest, and I thought they were smart to go in the Midwest, but they're very much focused on these feeder ski areas near these big urban areas to essentially get folks to buy them and then take a trip out West uh, to Vail or Beaver Creek or Park City or whatever. But they've really ignored these bigger, what we were describing earlier as sort of regional destinations uh, like Granite Peak, like Lutzen, like um, like some of the bigger resorts up in the UP or, or in Northern Michigan. And, and Altera has Boyne Mountain and Boyne Highlands, but there's no other icon resorts within 700 miles east or west. So it's, it seems to me that those companies have kind of ceded that terrain to Indy Pass. And I really thought Doug Fish was really smart to aggressively go after these big, uh, big for the Midwest ski areas and really lock into what is a very passionate ski culture. And I think underappreciated by these Colorado based companies. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know if it's underappreciated. It's it's probably a different business model. Um, you know, look at Vale and how they've they've acquired places like Wilmot, Afton, these really small ski resorts. You know, Peak kind of built up its its culture with these small ski resorts in the Midwest, and they were um, surrounded by um, you know major population bases and those offer up a, a you know you basically you know mad river we did have one other ski resort snow trails that we we were competing with but you kind of you kind of own the these these little metropolitan areas and so it's probably just a little bit of a different mentality i don't know if they underappreciate it but yeah i mean i think you do have a completely separate entity with with Indy and and some of these resorts that are destination based, they are big in terms of the you know the rest of their ski resort competitors. Um, and yeah, it's 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 definitely different. And I think Doug did a good job. You know, he looks at um, at these resorts as huge opportunities. They have a culture, and they're not just you know offering day day traffic. They do have some some visitation. We you know we see on average you know good. A good percentage of our weekend travelers are here for for two or three days, multi-day tickets. You know, we're not just selling day tickets. So um, I think that they did a good job. You know, whether or not Vale is underappreciating it, I think think it's just a different a different mindset in terms of their business model. So let's talk about COVID operations here, Greg. You took over a ski area, probably one of the most challenging times in history to take over a ski area. And, and, and I think that might be amplified by the fact that it's not a place that you had been on the ground at in the winter and, and actually had to run. So talk a little bit about the challenges of showing up in the summer after I'd imagine a lot of COVID prep was already underway. 
uh, and how are you able to work with the team to get that place ready to go for the winter? Yeah, I think actually um, being new and coming in, not ever having seen this ski resort operate in the winter time gave me an advantage um, because, you know, I walked in here, our base area is set up with four buildings. We have a rental building. We have our, uh, where my office is, which is a ticket and administrative uh, office. And then we have two um, base lodges or uh, as they call it here in the Midwest chalets. Um, one is uh, called the historic chalet. It is a, um, a very small footprint. Um, it's the, it's the building that was here when Rib Mountain State Park started. It's a historic building. It's actually owned by the Department of Natural Resources. And um, it's something that we work with them on operating. Um, it's not really designed very well to be a ski lodge. Um, it has different traffic patterns that really don't bode very well for um, in and out um, and one-way traffic. Um, and that traditionally here at Granite Peak has been the everyday use lodge. And then we have the Sundance Lodge, which is a rectangular building. And at one end is your cafeteria with a U-shaped line goes in, comes out. Um, in between that U-shaped line is a bar. Um, it has bigger bathrooms and air conditioning and really good ventilation. So when I came in and they told me that they use historic as their everyday lodge and Sundance was closed four days out of the week, I kind of laughed and I said, you got to be kidding me. Why would you not operate this enormous building that is beautiful and has a much better cafeteria line than the other one? Now, granted, historic is right on slope side. It has a beautiful deck. It does offer nice seating and views and I get the culture of it. But for me coming in, I was just like, well, this is our day, day, um, day use lodge. Um, so we enhanced it a little bit by, by kind of, they had already started working on this, this bar that was in there. Um, but we enhanced it by adding in some TVs and some, um, signage that helps in traffic flow. Um, and now we made historic into a sit down restaurant in which we have wait staff, um, handling it. Both lodges went down in capacity by 25%. Um, that was kind of something that we worked with the DNR. Wisconsin has an interesting dynamic with, with COVID, um, in that the governor has been putting out mask mandates for a number of months now, but he has some battles with a, his state Senate, which then kind of sometimes overrules him. So it's been kind of back and forth and you never really understand exactly what rules are in place in, in Wisconsin. Luckily, transmission case numbers have been dropping steadily since December. Um, and Wisconsin actually is doing really well right now in terms of COVID, policy, COVID um, case numbers and, and hospitalizations. So I'm really happy about that. But I think it really was an advantage to coming in and being brand new um, to to be able to kind of operate these COVID changes because you know the 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 slogan that's the way we've always done it kind of went out the door um, this year 
And uh, it really allowed me to kind of make some changes and it's worked. You know, we've been able to, for the most part, run our operations uh, successfully. The Historic Lodge as a restaurant has been great. People really like it and that's going to stick, you know, that's going to stick around moving forward. And I'm excited for next year and, and being able to branch out even, even more so into, you know, offering a, an eclectic menu and maybe some cool cocktails up there. Uh, right now we're really just running it as a, as a, you know, some basic food um, that is still offered in our other, in, in the Sundance Chalet, but by, by servicing the guests, we kind of keep the limitations, the amount of people that are in there down um, and can host it uh, properly. So I'm curious, as you have a couple months now running your resort with these COVID restrictions, if there are things that you've thought about keeping around next year. So for example, uh, one thing that surprised me when I moved from the Midwest to the Northeast is the culture of booting up in the lodge, which it, I don't know if that's true in Wisconsin, but in Michigan, people just booted up their cars. They didn't think twice about it. I always did that. I got yeah. to the Northeast, people carry all their stuff in, they get ready. Um, the the operators I've talked to in the Northeast are pretty happy to have gotten rid of that culture <laughs> for the most part yeah. uh, and send people out to their cars. And and some think that that might stick around. So so are there, are there things like that that you've changed specifically for COVID that you're saying, you know what? Uh, we may not have made this change before, but we did it for this. And, you know, it kind of makes sense to keep doing it this way. Is there anything like that out there? Yeah. Isn't it crazy how this, like, has completely changed the way people are looking at things? It's, it's nuts. Um, no, I, I agree with you. You know, one thing, Stu, you have to take into mind, too, in the Midwest and in the Northeast is, yeah, you boot up at your car out here, um, but your parking lot is is traditionally really close, you know, whereas in the Northeast – you know, I, I, I talk about Mount Snow, but like we had parking lots that, you know, it's like a quarter mile walk. Um, so it's, it's a little different. I think going from the Northeast to the Midwest, you know, here, yeah, our parking lot is, is right outside the door, um, you know, 500 feet from a lift. Um, so it's a little bit easier to, to do that. Um, we, we have put in place like no bags in the buildings and, and that has been a great, piece now we're we're a little lenient on it on weekdays you know we allow because we're you know for the most part just like every ski resort midweek you're you're a little bit quieter um and your base lodges are you know have a lot more space to them so we kind of are a little lax in allowing people to kind of boot up in the chalets and um but we do ask them to bring their stuff back to the cars especially on weekends and it's been a nice really nice thing um also just people Taking ownership of tables has been another thing that we've really gotten rid of. Um, we, Good. That's so annoying. <laughs> it, yeah, it, it is. And, and it's it, that's definitely a little bit more challenging because, um, you know, your ski moms and, and, and you know, maybe racers or race. And I'm not trying to throw any, any individual or any demographic or anything like that under the bus. But, you know, there's there's folks that come in and their kids might be out in a, in a race or a competition or just skiing for the day. And they're just hanging out and they want to have, um, you know, a place to stay and keep track of everybody's gear. And that's just something that we're not, we can't do this year because we have so many folks that just want to come in and grab lunch, um, warm up for a little bit. Um, so, so we've had some battles there. Um, and, but our staff has done a good job. And for the most part, and I, I, I do really truly mean this, is guests have been great, really, really great in 
understanding that. And I think that they, they under, they get it. And I think people like it overall, you know, there might be some that are like, they kind of want to have their own way about doing things, but for the most part, guests have been really great this year. And we've gotten a lot of good feedback here at the ski resort. And it's, 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 it's a challenging season. Um, we're getting through it. Things are, are going in the right direction as a country and as a state here in Wisconsin. Um, and I'm really excited about the, the next year, because I think there's going to be, you know, a lot of resorts are going to get back into the events, back into the daily kind of programming of après ski and, um, but there's going to be some changes and it's going to be for the better, um, for the overall industry and the culture of skiing as a whole. So yep. it's going to be an exciting time. And, and I, I think we're all looking forward to getting through it and it looks like we are. So, all right, Greg, well, I really appreciate your time today. I kept you way longer than I promised, but this was <laughs> some really great insight and I really appreciate you sharing it with us. So thank you very much and good luck with the rest of this season and, and beyond at Granite Peak. I hope you're there for a really long time. Yeah, thank you very much, and uh, yeah, we'll have to get you back out to the Midwest. I've uh, I've enjoyed watching your little uh, your little jaunt across uh, my old uh, home state of New York. There, it's been impressive. There's a lot of ski resorts in that state, and uh, a couple of them that I had no idea even existed. So good for you. Yeah, I've been having a lot of fun. It's it's really a great year to get out and explore some of these little places. And and what I've what I'm finding is that you know I'd I'd really been unfairly sort of dismissing them. And, and a lot of these little places are, are just terrific. And, and I'll go back to them well after the season. Yeah. I think your John up to Titus in one day, though, was a little over the, <laughs> over the top, I will say. Yeah. You know what? I, I have to agree with you on that. <laughs> um, I, I do not always make the best decisions when it comes to skiing, but uh, <laughs> you know, get, get it in while the conditions are good. That's what, that's what I learned in the Midwest. And I've taken that out to the Northeast with me. Good for you. Good for you. Well, thanks for having me on and uh, always a pleasure. Greg Fisher, General Manager and Marketing Director of Granite Peak, Wisconsin. Granite Peak skiers, what did you think about all of that? Are you pumped for this expansion? Do you think they'll pull it off? Those of you who are unfamiliar with Granite Peak or the Midwest, did that change your point of view at all? I think it's a region every serious skier should get to at least once, and when you do, you're going to want to put Granite Peak on your list. Next up, and soon, Montage Mountain owner Charles Jefferson that is already recorded and that was a really interesting conversation. Charles had never skied before buying the ski area in 2013 and he has a very different perspective from anyone else I've ever spoken with about how to manage a ski resort. Also coming up soon, just book Eric Wilbur, a writer over at New England Ski Journal. He is the author of 30 Years in a White Haze, a book he co-wrote with skiing legend Dan Egan. We will be talking about that book which will be dropping soon. While you're waiting for those, remember to subscribe to the free Storm Ski newsletter at stormskiing.com. Also follow me on Twitter at Storm Ski Journal. Stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester. I'll talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.